it's a great pleasure that we launch into another study of the Book of Ruth. And this series is entitled, The Unexpected Redemptive Providence of God. We began this study uh, at the Bella Vista Bible Study, and we got into it, and we gained so much from it, gleaned so much from it. Uh, I've done a little more study, and it's a little, little bit different. So if you've heard it before, you're going to hear it again. <laughs> so uh, let's go to Ruth 1, and we'll look at the first five verses. Now it came about in the days when the judges governed, there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem in Judea went to join, sojourn in the Moab with his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and, his, and the, two, two, the names of his two sons were Milan and Chilion. They were from Ephraim. Ephrateth, I cannot say what. <laughs> of Bethlehem of Judea. When they entered the land of Moab and remained there. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They took for themselves Moabite women as wives. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. And they lived there about ten years when both Malon and Chilion died, and the woman was bereft of her two children and her husbands. Let me, let's pray before we delve into the book. Father, we thank you for this book. It is written for us. Father, we may not have read it with much depth, and as we dig into the truths that are in, may it, may it fix our mind that you are the God of providence and that you establish what you do and you control everything in this world. We ask now that you bless this time. For it's in Christ's name I pray. Well, why study the book of Ruth? How many of you have read the book of Ruth? It's rhetorical. <laughs> There isn't one reference to the Lord God in this book. So what's important about it? Well, is there deeper meaning to be found in this book? I'll say there is. My interest in this book started uh, when I was reading through the scriptures many times. And verse 10 in chapter 2 really spoke. After Boaz tells Ruth to glean only in his fields with his maidens, he commands his servant not to touch her and gave her permission to drink from the pitchers of water that his servants had drawn. And she says to Boaz, Why have you found favor? Why have I found favor in your sight that you should take notice of me since I Spiritually speaking, could we not say, like Ruth, that when the Lord Jesus found us, he favored us with his grace and mercy and peace. Well, yes, that is certainly so. And there are deeper mysteries of providence revealed in this book. Well, first of all, we need to define a couple of theological terms. The first is Topology. And topology is defined as a picture, symbol, or pattern to represent something else. Some, 
Some examples would be when Abraham met Melchizedek in, in, in Genesis 14, and he brought bread and wine to Abraham. Well, he was a king and a high priest of Salem, which is, which is Jerusalem. And that was an unusual thing to be both king and to be a high priest. Uh, um, well, Melchizedek was a type of Christ. He is now serving as king and royal priest before the very throne of God. When Jesus said it is finished, the veil of the tabernacle was torn from top to bottom. It pictured total access to the Holy of Holies and those who have believed in Christ can now approach the throne of, of grace in his, in his righteousness. Another would be the Passover lamb in Exodus that served to be a type of symbol of Christ who would later come as a sacrifice for atonement for sin or sins. Well, providence is defined as a term to show or define the Lord's caring for his creation in every detail, large or small, but especially his church and especially his children. He tends, provides, and turns seemingly bad things into good examples uh, for you. Examples of his care, particularly with Israel, was he was a cloud by day and a pillar by night, providing, providing manna, parting the Red Sea, and meat a grumbling nation, also providing water from a rock when the people complained of thirst, and the raising of the bronze serpent to stop the deaths of those who looked towards it and cared for Israel in spite of their grumbling for 40 years. Again, these are also types of Christ. Of course, the examples of Joseph's ordeal when he was sold as a slave by his brothers, wrongly accused twice and thrown into prison for two years, then elevated to the second most powerful ruler in Egypt. Joseph is probably the clearest example of the Lord's providence in Scripture. His brothers tended to do him harm, but God, and we find that in Second. Ephesians 4, 2-4, being rich in mercy because of his great love for us, attended to Joseph. He used Joseph's sufferings and trials to bring about the saving of Joseph's family and ultimately Israel through this great famine. Turning his brother's evil intended to blessings for all of them in Genesis 50, 30, 20, Joseph says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but the Lord meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many lives. So why study the book of Ruth? Well, we live in distressing times and disturbing times, but the period of Ruth was much, much worse, but the Lord, the Lord delights in taking horrible and miserable circumstances and providentially turning them into surprising and unexpected good. 
Well, how do you handle difficult times in your life? The book of Ruth was written for all of us. It gives hope and purpose to train us to trust the Lord's providence. His care for his children produces always the greater good. The big picture of Ruth gives insight into how the Lord works through long, dark days, using his plans and purposes, especially his redemptive purposes. Romans 5, 4 and 5, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope, and hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. And in 1 Corinthians 10, 11, Paul writes, now these things happen to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction. Reflect on the Lord's providence in your life. Think of all those regretful decisions we've made uh, during our lifetime. Accumulation of overwhelming debt, taking a job, thinking it was better, but having to relocate, and it turns out to be a disaster. Or speaking harsh words to your spouse and your kids that can't be taken back or unsaid. All these things stymie our production service, productive service to our Lord, but it, gives a, it helps us understand the grace and mercy of the Lord behind the, the results of very poor decision-making. The Red Rose of Ruth is not only a love story, but it shows the hand of the Lord, the hands of the Lord used to create all things to teach the country to teach the coming of the kinsman redeemer. There are only two books in Ruth that are named for women in the book of the Bible, Esther and Ruth. They show that women are co-heirs of the Lord's salvation. And it was probably written by Samuel either prior to or during David's reign. It looks back 900 years to Jacob and forward 100 years to King David. The period of Ruth was most likely uh, 1126 to 1105 BC. Well, let's look at what was going on at the time uh, in Israel and the nations around Israel. The setting is in the dark, in the dark, dark days of Judges. The book of Judges defined the judges. The book of Judges defines that judges were appointed by the Lord to deliver a and a, be a savior for the nation small s. This period lasted approximately 350 years, probably from, 30, from 1370 B.C. to 40, 40, 1041 B.C. And you think about it, that's older than our nation. Joshua was a great leader that influenced and affected the nation's spiritual and military health. Both he and Moses predicted apostasy rejection of the theocracy and the great desire to have a king just like the other nations before their deaths. Joshua began forcing out, of the, forcing out of the pagan nations around the promised land. After Joshua's death, the next generation did not know or follow the Lord. In the books of Judges, times of obedience equal blessing and disobedience and great sin oppression. In the first birth of Ruth, it says, now in those days when the judges ruled. So let's turn to the book of Judges and go to chapter 
2, verse 10. Well, in, in that verse, it describes what was going on uh, in, the, in the time of the judges. Well, first, there was ignorant, ignorance. They did not know the Lord. And verse 10 says, And rose another generation after them that did not know the Lord, nor the work of which he had done for Israel. They did not know the miracles of the Exodus. The Lord had performed the, those things for the provision of Israel. And then in chapter 17, verse 6, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And then later it says, in these days there were no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's Judges 21 and 25. Since they had embraced all the nation's pagan influence, they desired a king, just like those nations. Well, the second thing that was present is indulgence. In Judges 2.11, Israel did evil and worshipped the Baals. They thought the Lord's laws were too oppressive, and they wanted freedom prosperity and happiness and that's not what they got in Baal worship they were, the Baals were worshipped as the gods of fertility they wanted their crops they wanted their family they wanted their cattle, sheep all to prosper but that's not what they got the, second, the third thing that was present is intercession their sin produced pity from God and you can see that in, the, in verse 18. When the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and delivered them from the hand of their enemies all the times of the judge. For the Lord was moved with pity by their groanings because of, what, of those who oppressed them. They would repent and receive help and mercy from the Lord. Well, the judges then were quite different from the judges we have presently. There was no courthouse. There was no courtrooms. And finally, I think they began to decide things uh, at the gate of the city. But these judges organized the militia, and they administered justice. And they were only local and regional. Um, when that judge died, no one took their place. So how gracious of the Lord that he showed mercy and grace despite Israel's abandoning him. In Nehemiah 9, 27, 31, you don't need to turn there, I'll read it. Therefore you delivered them from the hand of their oppressors who oppressed them. But when they cried out to you in the times of their distress, you heard them from heaven. And according to your great compassion, you gave them deliverers who delivered them from the hand of their oppressors. But as soon as they had rest, they did evil again before you. Therefore, you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they ruled over them. Then they cried out to you. You heard from heaven, and many times you rescued them in time to turn them back to your law. Yet they acted arrogantly and did not listen to your commandments, but sent, sinned against ordinances by which a man if a man observes, he shall live. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not listen. 
However, you bore them for many years and admonished them with your spirit through their through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore, you gave them to the hands of the people of the land. Nevertheless, in your great compassion, they did, that you did not make an end to them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and compassionate God. Well, at that time, they broke covenant with the Lord. In the Mosaic Covenant, conditions for blessing or for curse were read to the people. They abandoned the Lord and served other gods. They loved themselves more than they loved the Lord. Did, not, did they not realize that sin had affected their minds and they could not think logically like unreasoning animals we heard this morning? Well, lastly, there, they, there was indignation. Well, they were severely tested with hardships. Marauders came and ate their grain, ate their grapes from the vineyards, ate their olives from the olive groves, destroyed their crops, stole their cattle, sheep, and goats. Then they would trample their grain fields. They would destroy their vineyards and their olive groves. And that caused very dire circumstances. This was a famine caused by their disobedience. Israel no longer was a strong nation was now very weak. And the Lord said he would no longer drive out Israel's enemies. And he tested them to see if they would listen to him. So let's go back to the book of Ruth. And we read in first first one, when it came about in the days of the judges, when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. Well, the Lord has used famine multiple times in scripture and it's always to discipline or bring back them him uh, them to himself well think about the first year of 2020 well people began to hoarding their resources there were empty shelves there was there was a sh- toilet paper shortage they began to store food items for the long haul they adopted the mentality of we're all going to die. That's what the government and the media was telling us. Well, imagine this going on for 350 years. During that period, Israel experienced a a time of frowning providence. This means that the Lord withholds what is necessary for mankind to live and to thrive, a frowning providence. Well, we are not deists who thought the Lord created all things and then set them in motion. Like a battery that has been inserted and things run on their own. Our Lord is active in restraining and orchestrating these events in history. A fundamental assumption of the view of providence is that the creation is not self-sustaining. It requires the Lord's will and actions to sustain its processes. Well, the Lord has many erroneous concepts of providence. At the heart of every non-biblical proposal is the denial of the personhood of the Lord. And in this place is some force, a la Star Wars, dominating man and clashing with his humanity. It may be local or all-pervasive, rational, irrational, consistent, or arbitrary. Such is the logic of fallen man. Well, 
things that providence is not. First is fate, attributing changes to the unknown forces. Second is luck, fortuitous change. And it was so impersonal, they had to name it Lady Luck. Serendipity, offhand discovery of things present. Next is history on our side. It's just simply a Marxist and a pagan thought. Progress, science and technology, education, social evolution, and, universe, and ter territorial conquest is pushing forward in a relentless momentum. Nature, they had to name it Mother Nature. Thoreau and Emerson attributed the nation to the nation the gifts of providence. Natural selection and survival of the fittest. Darwin's The Theory of Revolution espouses that man is good and he will be God. It has ruined higher education for many years and is present now in all education. The survival of the fittest makes providence totally unnecessary. And lastly, know-how or applied science. The human race is sufficient in itself to make things happen, whether good or bad. Well, we have hybrid seeds, we have climate change, <laughs> and they use that instead of God's providence. And you can refute somebody who believes in climate change by knowing the doctrine of providence. Well, none of these things are true. True biblical providence is anything but these things. The high king of heaven provides all necessary elements for his hand to move his decreed plan of history forward to his planned conclusion to the end of the ages. It has always been to his glory and our good tied together, and they cannot be divorced. The irony of Elimelech, the irony of Elimelech and his family moving to Moab from Bethlehem as Bethlehem meant the house of bread. It was the breadbasket of the nation. But when the Lord struck this very, very breadbasket to show his rebellious people that he alone was responsible for the nation's production and Baal was not. There's an interesting note, uh, interesting thing to notice. Like Boaz, Elimelech owned land in and around Bethlehem. Elimelech's land was barren. So he took his family to Moab. We're not told why. Boaz chose to stay. Therefore, David, the great-great-grandson of Elimelech, had roots in Bethlehem. And through that family came the descendants of David and eventually the Lord Jesus Christ. And that, was, that is not an arbitrary coincidence. Not fate, not luck. Famine is recorded in many places in scripture. There was a famine in Abraham and Sarah's time and Jacob's time and during Joseph's trials in Egypt. Famine was used by the Lord to discipline the sin of nations. The Lord's use of famine involved starvation of the people of Israel. Israel's non-devotion to the Lord was exactly what was going on in Canaan. And it had very devastating effects on the population. Well, if you want to understand the effects of starvation, find a medical dictionary and see what hardship it is. 
It resulted in death for many because men and women had to engage in extremely hard work to provide for their families. Starvation meant that enough calories could not be eaten to sustain energy for the hard work facing them every day. This is probably why Elimelech died. Any confession of luck denies providence. Providence takes the chance out of chance. But this is an example of the Lord's frowning providence, providence by withholding the necessities of life, easier for me to say, in discipline. And further response to the Lord for his providence, even his founding providence, is thanksgiving to a personal God. The use of his founding providence was to bring back Israel to him with starvation, confrontation, and purification because of their worship of the Baals. This is where the, Lord, the Lord's overarching plan of redemption in and through the Lord Jesus Christ begins. We see it in the Garden of Eden, Genesis 3.15, the promise of the seed, capital S. And in Genesis 22.18, the Lord's promise to Abraham's seed would be blessed. And then in Genesis 38, 16 through 29, the events of Judah, Judah and Tamar, but the birth of Zerah and Perez. There'll be more on that later. Well, why is the book of Ruth so important? It's the Lord's promise to Abraham in Genesis 22:18. In your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And it's repeated again in Acts 3:25 where it's quoted, in your seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And in Galatians 3, 16, through 19, 16 and 19, now the promise is spoken to Abraham, to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, that capital S, that is Christ. Well, let's review all the events that came before the book of Ruth. Recall in Genesis when Abraham and Lot decided to part ways because the land could not support their herds, that graciously Abraham let Lot choose which area he would live. He told Lot, if you go left, then I will go right. If to the right, then I will go left. Lot saw that the valley was green and fertile and chose the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to settle in. When the sins of those cities rose to the Lord's attention, he decided to destroy the cities. But Peter, as we read this morning, 2 Peter 2, called Lot a righteous man. So the Lord instructed the angels to remove Lot and his family from the city, and so the city was destroyed. Because Lot and his two daughters were the only remaining family members, his daughters thought that their family line had ended, so they acted through incest to, to produce sons. Moab and ben were born. Moab's name means seed of my father, and ben name means son of my kinsman. Well, Moab established the nation of Moab, and ben established the nation of Syria, or the city of Ammon. Both nations became Israel's bitter, bitter enemies. Well, even Abraham and Sarah, because they did not believe the Lord's promises, use human action to try to, destroy, to create an heir. 
They used their maid servants to produce children because they became impatient with the perfect timing of the Lord. But the Lord in his providence performed a miracle of having two people beyond childbearing age to produce the promised heir, Isaac. Uh, if you'll go back and review uh, Genesis, Genesis 38, 6 through 29, you will see the events that uh, I'm talking about. Well, Judah and Tamar was to be carried out uh, under the laborite law of marriage that when the brother died, the oldest brother would go and produce children to protect that family, especially the women. Well, both parties did not follow the law and became, and became involved in a sinful act resulting in the birth and the, and the lineage of the Messiah. Later, Naomi will use the Leverett law to allow Ruth to be able to have Boaz becomes Ruth's kinsman redeemer. Well, let's look uh, at the characters of Ruth. In the culture of that time, their name described their personality and their character. First, Elimelech. His name means, my God is king. He was faithful to the Lord and led his family, his family to be faithful even in those dark times. He saw apostasy in Israel and may have understood the, the Lord's use of famine. He had the choice of starving or leaving Bethlehem. He took his family to Moab, a total of 50 miles. First he went east and then he went south uh, of the, by the Dead Sea through a rugged mountainous change range on the difficult, difficult journey to the land of Moab. Naomi, her name means my joy, my pleasant one. She's mentioned 22 times in scripture, but only in the book of Ruth. Obviously she was, obviously she was a joy to be around growing up in and around Bethlehem. So Elimelech married well. Later her joy became, after the deaths of her husbands and son, turned into bitterness. She had a strong connection to the land, but was willing to leave with Elimelech. She had a deep trust in the Lord. Well, the sons, Malon and Chilion, thought possibly, it's thought possibly they were twins because their names are so much alike. Malon, his name means sickly, and because of the influence of his parents, he was a strong believer in the Lord. He made a great choice wife. He won the heart of Ruth and so began the stage for the Davidic messianic lineage of Christ. In Ruth, he saw sincerity, honesty, and a true seeker. He was probably malnourished at birth and then experienced starvation of life, causing probably, probably causing his death. It's ironic that the Lord was using a Moabite woman center stage to bring redemption to Israel, but he uses a weak to accomplish his purposes. Chilion, his name means pining or weakling. Nothing else is known about him, so he's just a blip in history. He is mentioned after Malon, so evidently Malon was the firstborn. His discernment in women was not as good as his brothers, for Orpah means stubborn or bald. He had a strong faith in the Lord, for he never abandoned the Lord. 
and she eventually will. Well, the heroine of our story, Ruth, her name means friendship, or some say pity. And that's where we get the English word for ruthless, not pity. <laughs> well, what, what are their futures? Well, Elimelech dies probably from the effects of starvation and working hard uh, to, to provide for his family. He would not be buried with his family in Bethlehem, but would rather be buried in Moab. His family prepared him for his burial, but that was not an easy task. It had to be done a certain way and a certain order. Because of the love in the family, they all participated in the preparation burial for Elimelech. His legacy was that he left for his family, was one of devotion for their well-being, to their faith and keeping the Lord's commandment. It was not a matter of geography, but it was a matter of theology. The future for Malin and Chilion is that they were probably married after Elimelech's death, and then they died shortly after that. Now the widows are Naomi, Ruth, and Orpah, but Naomi was crushed by her circumstances and became bitter. The wives decide to convert to Judaism. And that's not an easy task to do, and it's not done very often. The, pro the process of conversion is fourfold. First, the conversion had to be witnessed by three Jewish males over the age of 13, and they didn't have to be rabbis. Secondly, the males had to be circumcised, but the women did not. Next, by immersion through a ritual bath for both men and women to satisfy the rite of purification. Then they have to offer a certain sacrifice. Then they must embrace study and live out Jewish law for a long period of time. Well, let's look at the, two, let's look at the faith of the two women. Well, Ruth, after becoming a Jewish proselyte, showed that her faith was strong and genuine. Since she was taught the law of Yahweh and understood who he was, what he was like, and understood the covenant he made to Abraham, she trusted her future to the Lord's attributes and his promises. Noting that the Lord had promised to bring a redeemer. All the while not knowing that she would be an instrument in the unfolding of the Lord's plan. Well, Orpah, after becoming a convert to Judaism, she showed outward external signs of conversion. Later, she abandons Naomi, Ruth, and the Lord, so her faith was not internal, but only external. Well, let's look at verses in the first chapter. Let's look at verse 6 through 12. Then she arose with her daughter-in-laws that she might return to the land of Moab. For she had heard the land of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and giving them food. So she departed from the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her. And they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. And Naomi said to her two daughter-in-laws, Go, return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. May the Lord grant that you may find rest, 
each in the house of your husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voice, and they wept. And they said to her, No, but we surely return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return, my daughters. Why should you go with me? I have yet son have I yet sons in my womb that they might be your husbands? Return, O daughters. Go, for I am too old to have a husband. If I said I had hope, if I should even be a husband tonight and bear sons, would you therefore wait until they are grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is harder for me than it is for you, for the hand of the Lord has gone forth against me. So she began the, uh, the trip back to Bethlehem, and as they started to go, they had no one, no man, to protect them, except they had the hand of the Lord to keep them safely. And she says that even if she was able to bear sons through the Levite marriage for them to uh, be able to marry and to produce children, that was not going to happen. Well, we don't know how, but they found out that the Lord had blessed Bethlehem and the famine was over there. So they departed Moab with her two they departed Moab with the two daughters and Naomi, taking that fifty mile journey, long, hard mile back to Bethlehem. They as I said, they were embarking on a dangerous trip with only the Lord's hand to protection. At some point, um, Naomi said to them, go back to your mother's house. That's really what happens when there's a widow. They go back into the, in their family. Thanking them for their kindnesses that they had won, they had shown her, wishing they could find a husband to care and provide for them. Then Naomi kissed them both, and they wept together loudly. They did not wish to leave her because of the bonds of love and the trials and the tribulation they had gone together. Naomi knew that she could not produce children to be able to help them through the Levite law. But they wept loudly again, and Orpah kissed Naomi to leave. Naomi to leave. But Ruth clung to her. But Naomi urged Ruth again to return to her home. But Ruth said some of the most beautiful words in Scripture. Do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. For where I, you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. Thus may the Lord do to me and worse, if anything but death parts you and me. Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, so she encouraged no more. This chapter does not reveal the details of the hard, hard journey back to Bethlehem, but they did arrive there safely. Since Naomi had been away for so long, her return caused a stir in the town. And Naomi said, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. She had become bitter. For she felt that the Lord had, felt, had dealt very bitterly with her. Elimelech, Nilam, Chilion had died while in Moab. Nor 
deserted her. She thought the Lord had afflicted her. She let her circumstances cloud her understanding of the Lord's providence. In this book, do you now see the Lord's hand guiding these events and the, the lives of the people in the book of Ruth? Has your concept of providence changed? Do you see it and experience it in your life? It's always a good exercise at the end of each year to look back and recount all the providence of the Lord in your life. Is it a frowning providence? Or is it the good providence of the Lord? Do you now see that providence takes the chance out of chance? In the Reformed Doctrine of Predestination, a doctrine so closely tied to the Lord's sovereignty and providence, Lorraine Bettner writes, since the universe had its origin in God and depends on him for its continued existence, it must be in all parts and at all times subject to his control so that nothing can come to pass contrary to what he has expressly decrees or permits. Since our Lord is all-wise, all-knowing, all-good-being, can we not trust him to give us another, to give us either frowning providence, which we are experiencing now in this country, or good providence as he carries out his redemptive purposes in his creation and his creatures? When you fail to trust the Lord in everything, you're, you're claiming to know better how to run your life. Your lack of faith doesn't see the Lord working to bring the best things for your life. So hopefully we learn that providence takes the chance out of chance. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this book. We acknowledge that it was truly written for us. And Father, we may not recognize that your hand of providence is on our lives, but it's real. And it, it causes us to, to know more of who you are because you lead us to your word. You declare yourself in your word and you teach us in it. And Father, we pray that as we go through this book, this wonderful book, that we will learn the deep things and the mysteries of your grace. We ask these things in Christ's name.